Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's podcast, we are chatting to the beautifully named Emma Goss Custard. Now, for Emma, baking without flour came naturally to her as a student in the 1990s. She much preferred the luxurious texture and taste of cakes made from ground almonds and polenta. And she kept going, even when well-meaning friends said her approach of replacing wheat with premium ingredients would never work. People wanted cheap cakes with a long shelf life, didn't they? Luckily, her friends were wrong, and in this conversation, you'll hear how Emma managed to win over customers like John Lewis and Harvey Nichols very early on in her business career, and how 20 years on, her gluten-free bakery Honey Buns is still thriving, even though the cake world has become amazingly competitive. You'll also learn how challenging it is to create dairy-free bakes that survive being jostled around in delivery vans and how Emma has turned old farm buildings into arguably the prettiest office spaces in the UK. It's like walking into a fairy land with bunting and twinkly lights. And that's where you join us now in this week's conversation. Emma, thank you so much for uh, for meeting me and agreeing to do this podcast. Where on earth? I've just driven through some beautiful countryside to get here, and I'm sat in a wonderland. Can you just uh, you know tell me where we are and introduce yourself? Yep, my name is Emma Goss Custard, and we are based in Holwell, which is a little hamlet um, equidistant between Sturminster Newton and Sherborne. So we're in a very traditional, what was a really traditional dairy farming landscape. And it's not traditional anymore, is it? I, I, I'm trying to describe what we're in. You say this was a chicken shed and now it looks like a sort of Alice in Wonderland. There's bunting up, there's a log burner burning. This is a beautiful little spot. I, I feel like I'm in a film set, but where are we? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, people do scratch their heads a wee bit when they come in here. It's um, we're, we're in the bee shack and as you just said, it was uh, renovated by our great friend Nick, who actually used to farm here back in the day. And he helped us to renovate it into what is now quite a hard-working little building. So um, it's it's the team hangout place, so their restroom. And we've also got an open-plan kitchen where a lot of the recipe development happens and the cakes then get slung over the counter for the team to eat and give us direct feedback on. And once a month, it also opens as a pop-up shop. Amazing. Okay, so the public can come in and and see it and sit yeah. in this. So I mean, I thought it was a rocking chair when I started, but I'm in a beautiful old wooden chair, sat by a wood burner in the middle of the English countryside. There is no, and there's daffodils on the table because we're just coming into spring. So yeah, there is no greater privilege. But when I'm not living uh, some sort of fantasy in this room, what else happens here? This is your this is your heart of your operations. Is it baking? Yeah, I think the heart of the operation, the uh, kitchen table I actually started the whole enterprise on is right there. 
um, to our to our left. And we this is where all of the thinking and the reading and the dreaming really and the creating goes on. But the actual functional bakery is about 150 yards away across the farmyard and that's in an original stone barn building which would have housed the cows when this was a dairy farm okay so now it's purely for baking and the and the cakes and all the stuff that you do there's no no farming per se going on here anymore presumably no proper farming proper farming (laughs) yeah you're then the next then so you were sort of an accidental pioneer and i'm really looking forward to getting into the 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 detail of uh of what you do uh and how particularly your kind of style of cakes you know is, is now so in vogue but um can you just take me back you know how did you end up in baking what's your first memories of of baking and just explain a little bit how this business came to be yeah I think um, looking back on it now I think that the influence of my mum was really quite intense Um, we lived in an old vicarage which was very rambling and very cold and the only warm room in the house constantly was the kitchen because there was an old shonky old arger in there where was this? Uh, that was up in North Lincolnshire in a little village called Humberston And my mum was untrained, but a really good cook. I guess she had to be because there were four of us children she had to feed. And I've realised recently just how much I was influenced by watching her. She had a Kenwood mixer. She was always baking. We were required to not stick our fingers in anything and keep a safe distance away. It wasn't one of those idyllic helping your mum on a baking stool kind of Torture. scenarios. Yeah. Like watching only, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, strictly hands off. Um, but that made a big impression, I think, and those lovely smells and being able to eat the results if you fend your brothers off, you know, for the race to the cake tin. Um And I also remember having a bit of a disastrous foray into trying to bake a cake for my mum. I thought I'd have a go. She wasn't around. It was her birthday. I must have been seven or eight at the time. And I had a go at making what I thought would be a really delicious chocolate sponge cake and took it out of the Arga, which was pretty unreliable, to be fair. And it was raw inside. So I like little... the fact you're blaming the agar already, straight <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with my uh, no, lack of confidence damn there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I made this uh, concoction of bread, water and margarine. Ooh, lovely. It's probably Echo, something really, yeah. Um, made a paste up, stuck it in the raw centre of the cake and then presented it to my mum, who very charmingly... Was she polite? It. Oh, she, she was. was. <laughs> yeah, just checking. I was like, after she made you watch cake, I was just going to give you some really frank feedback. That could have been the end there, couldn't it? Could have been the end, yeah. Um, so I did stay, stick to uh, savoury cooking for a while after that. Um, and then, yeah, bounced back to cakes. But I think on both sides, again, it's with retrospect, but both my grandmas also were very, very keen bakers and, again, self-taught, um, but just into old-fashioned hospitality the kitchen door was always open the kettle was always on it's probably a northern thing as well yeah that sounds amazing yeah okay so uh you've got an interest then what happens i think was it you know off to uni how did this how did this transpire into being an actual business i suppose or even an idea went to uni studied english another great love english literature and had nothing to do with catering but had always baked on the side and it got to be quite a handy bartering chip 
because I couldn't type. And it was just the point where computerization was starting to be on that old being phased in. And my essays needed typing up on a computer and I didn't want to have to learn to do that if I could avoid it. So I baked lemon cakes, which were my kind of signature thing, ground almonds and polenta rather than flour. And I would exchange them um, for getting the essays typed up. And there was a lady down the road in North London, which is, I was at university as an undergrad in London, uh, who very charmingly again <laughs> went with it and accepted the cakes as payment. Is there, is there a certain ratio of uh, sort of cake to uh, typing? Is it done by the page or by just by the document? Is it you know? I think page per slice. Yeah, page like per that. slice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Amazing. And uh, you mentioned then straight away, and I got to ask. So uh, yeah, almonds and polenta. Was that the normal thing that people were baking with at that point? And where where, where did that come from? Do you know? I think that one of the things I must have picked up would have been Elizabeth David and her influence, and definitely that Mediterranean vibe of the ground indigenous whatever's growing around at that time they're not great wheat farmers in northern Italy but they do use an awful lot of ground nuts which are hanging around literally pistachio ground walnut ground almond and polenta being a brilliant blender inner with the nuts um Elizabeth David was a forerunner of bringing that over to the UK who's Elizabeth Elizabeth David um just a fantastic food writer kind of like the doyen ahead of her time um brought over Mediterranean ingredients like olive oil things that we would have regarded as really quite exotic back in the day Mm. um I fell a little bit in love with yeah what she was doing I guess Excellent. So how do you go then? Again, the next stage of the story, you're, you're, you're clearly uh, entrepreneurial savvy because you're already delegating out the typing of your lectures. Uh, what, what happens next? hadn't thought of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought of myself as a very reluctant and um, kind of atypical business person because I don't, I'm not particularly driven by the commerciality of it necessarily. Um, I appreciate that that has to be there for it to be a sustainable enterprise, but I'm really, really interested in the more visceral stuff. And, and for me, that is making someone really happy, giving them something that they can't otherwise get, giving a little bit of real delight in the day. You know, if you're going to make something, even if it's something as humble as a lemon cake, make it really, really good. And then have that response from them, you know, direct feedback. That was the beauty of the embryonic business, if you like, getting that kind of face-to-face customer reaction and then looking genuinely surprised at this kind of amateurishly cling-filmed wrap of lemon cake. And then they look amazed as they unwrap it and eat it. And it's like, wow, that's really, really good. And why was it so good? Was this this is uh, this is the the, the flavours or what was uh, what was special? I think flavour, absolutely, hundred percent. Flavour, texture, the whole. I guess you'd say in the trade, the whole organolytical experience, the smell of it, everything. Um, and also, it was kind of easy to stand out as being good back in the nineties, which is when this all started. 
um, because the food landscape, from what I remember of it, I can remember being really frustrated and thinking, this is more like the 70s. Nothing's happened between the 1970s and the 1990s. It's all kind of stagnated into this horrible extended shelf life, price is dominant, i.e. we're going to buy it in really low. And so many people were telling me, good, well-intentioned people were saying, um, you're not going to make this work. People don't want stuff that it, it's if it's that good, they're not that bothered. And it's like, they've probably never been given the option. Mm, that's true. I don't think most people you speak to, particularly in, I suppose, the entrepreneurial end, so, you know, people who've created their own business rather than working for the big brands, very rarely does anyone say, I started this because of the money. I started this to make cash. It's normally I started it because I wanted to make people happy or because I had this this accidental gift or, or opportunity presented itself. But it's normally about, yeah, the, the product itself, I suppose, and the quality. And then, then there's always a few naysayers who say, no, 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 you've got to be thinking about the money. And I think it's a myth. I think, yeah, it's not. It's not about the money. Do a really good job. Make people really happy. The money will come. And obviously, you know, we need money to do all the stuff we do, but it's rarely the starting point. So at what point then do you, does it, when's that trigger where you go, you know what, I might actually try and make a living out of this? Mm, I think fairly rapidly for me because I struggled very much to get into the whole corporate scene. I felt that that wasn't a good fit for me. And the feeling was mutual. <laughs> um, what, 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 was there a particular job that made you realise that very quickly? Or? Oh gosh, um, just try. Just um, I've always worked. Um, like when I was studying, I've always kind of had jobs, and I've gravitated towards food without realising that connection. So always wanted to roll my sleeves up and serve coffee, bake bread, make sandwiches, humble stuff. But feeding people good stuff has always appealed and being in that environment. And then contrast that with I joined a temp agency during one of the holidays and it was to be a vaguely corporate, by which I mean you have to wear, I don't know, a suit and meet and greet at the Barbican Centre. Oh, wow. And I just felt like an utter fish out of water. I, it just yeah made me feel really shaky inside and any of my one of my great pals um who I'm very close to today she's a corporate lawyer and she took me on a few little kind of journeys into her world and she was trying to encourage me to do a law conversion course because in her words she said em i've got no idea what you're going to end up doing <laughs> i don't think she would have foreseen you sat here in a in a in a, in a fairyland yeah chatting to me about cakes which that would have been unforeseeable i used to run the home's place barbican so that was my uh, my job once upon a time as well so i know it well okay. and, uh, and and i always found it ironic that i'd be there and i ran a health club so people would be literally queuing to get into the gym at 5:30 in the morning in central london and, and although I was working in central London and I did have to wear a suit and I did have to be there at a certain time, I thought it couldn't be less, much less of a corporate job. In the fact, fundamentally, there's a gym, it's a swimming pool, people do a bit of yoga and stuff like that. And I felt so false being in the centre of London and, and, and yeah, knowing that I've, I was basically from the beach and the coast and this was a transitionary step, watching the corporate lawyers and these people living their kind of, you know, crazy lives in central London. So thank goodness um, that, that, that now we're, um, we're down here. So that puts you off the corporate world. What's the first, you know, foray into business? Did you open a bakery did you start straight away selling to to, to other um, providers i've got a lot lot of time and thanks to, to you know to um my 
first employer um, in Oxford who I did a teacher training PGCE at Hartford College after my undergraduate studies in London. And whilst I was teacher training, I again realised with a sinking feeling, I'm not going to be able to do this. Uh, it's not for me. Is this a primary or secondary education? It was for secondary. I loved the kids on a one-to-one -one basis. My crowd control yeah, was yeah. not great. Um, but yeah, I loved the children, but I knew I'd be a dreadful, dreadful secondary teacher. Um, so after I was still baking, I had got a job at a place called Le Petit Pan, and my first employer was a Croatian refugee called Kresho, and he took a punt on me. Um, I was still working, I was doing my studies, but then working the job at the same time, so 4am starts and stuff, and just loved it, just felt like coming home again. And I started baking some cakes on the side, he started buying them, he used to joke about, we'll see a lorry going past 1am with uh, whatever your business is going to be called on the side, because I, I was able to uh, confide in him that I was not that happy on the course. Um, I was really beating myself up about it. And he said, well, then don't do it. Then just start selling cakes. And I was like, if yeah, I can't do that. And he said, well, I've come from Croatia with nothing. And that was quite an eye opener. So on the day that I finished my course, I bought an old post office bike. And I had the idea of making beautiful sandwiches and the cakes were a sideline. And I was really inspired. There's so many amazing people who were just emerging at that time. And um, one of the guys, he won't know who I am at all, but he's called Dan Schickentanz. Um, I hope he's yeah, still around, you might hear this, but he was making amazing bread, bagels, ciabatta, sourdough, rye breads, beautifully. Um, from what I'd read of him, he'd come over from New York and he was Polish by descent, and he'd started a bakery in Oxford, and I was really impressed. And I bought the bread. I used to cycle over to the bakery, pick up the bread, roast my own chickens in a shared student digs, completely under the EHO radar, and made gourmet sandwiches, which were a pain because I didn't have any refrigeration, so it was very just-in-time just delivery, if you like, roasting them putting them in bread, getting them out there safely, but it was enormously stressful. And the cakes were a much more sustainable bet, if you like. They didn't need to be refrigerated. That's how it all began. So who, who were you selling those to, directly to...? I was really dumb at the beginning. I was really, yeah, not at all commercially savvy. So I was doing 120, 130 miles a week on my bike wow. and cycling around the unglamorous bits of Oxford, which are, for those who know, the ring road area, and pedalling around and asking people on industrial estates who were brilliant, um, what would you like for lunch today? and they would give me their lunch order and I would cycle home, this is pre-fax machine, wow. and make their orders and then go back and deliver. On the day? On the day. Literally. Wow, brilliant. On the That's day. amazing. And I would spend the night then baking the cakes, which would accompany the sandwiches to go out. It was incredibly hard work, but I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So how many people a day-ish would you be making lunch for at that time? Then? Gosh, 
I guess on a good day, it would be, say, 30. Yeah. Um, and the trick was to try and get multiple orders from the same workplace. So the double glazing guys were really good to me. <laughs> and then there was an insurance office. They were really good fun. I think they could see just I was busting a gut yeah, to just, get just, this done. Yeah, respecting your graft. Yeah, it was real hard graft. It really was. Um, it taught me an awful lot. And then there was an, the inevitable light bulb moment. This is daft. I need to be focusing on one or the other. I can't drive. So therefore, a refrigerated van is out of the question. And therefore, the bike beckoned, cakes beckoned. And I also decided then that I needed to be approaching people like my old boss, Cresho at Le Petit Pain and other delis and sandwich shops where it was a more efficient. Makes, yeah, it makes perfect sense. So rather than selling, yeah, directly to consumer. I did a, uh, a podcast, hasn't gone out yet, with Ollie from Lunch. He'll, he will love this story because he uh, has a business which delivers lunches to corporate offices and he's been through a similar trajectory. He probably, he probably cut out a few stages of that recognising that he needed to try and get offices to order a certain minimum. Um, but yeah, he's super busy trying to launch that market. So it's nice to know that somebody started it right at that tiny scale. But he also started in his in, in a flat and uh, yeah, didn't tell his landlady what he was doing. I think at one point he was making something like 300 lunches a day basically in his flat with a flatmate who was pulling his hair out and then same with um, Rupert from Conquer Gin I don't know if you know Conquer but he's the same he started distilling the gin and he actually had the HMRC come around um, into a kitchen that he was renting and the coordinates on the gin bottle are actually the uh, the location of that first flat so the number of businesses that have started under the radar or at the least you know yeah just in somebody's kitchen is uh, is phenomenal so it's great so uh, that makes perfect sense you, you 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 progress you start selling fundamentally wholesale you're still cooking it in 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 the kitchen at what point do you decide right I'm going to get some premises this is going to be my my job and how did that uh, how did that go by this time I'd met my husband and I was really really happy in Oxford had five amazingly understanding housemates two of whom were my brothers so that did help they had my back from and the get-go they got get -go. free cake right they so got, got free cake yeah. they got a lot of cake and so my husband got a proper job he moved to Guildford I wanted to be with him so I also wanted to keep the customers that I had so I very quickly uh, learnt to drive with ama an amazing lady called Mrs Passmore which is uh, that's a great name a bit like you being called Goss Custard that isn't it <laughs> Indeed, hey, Mrs yeah. Passmore brilliant she was great and uh, she got me on my way she knew that I was skin you know it was a very very hand-to-mouth existence I had no cash and I look back at that very fondly because literally it, it was such a seedling uh, enterprise and she knew it was a big deal for me to pass that driving test. She knew how important you it boats, was. basically. It was, yeah, all in. Yeah. And that enabled me to then uh, could drive back from Guildford to Oxford and maintain that round of trade customers who are delivered to twice a week, as well as then building up customers in Guildford. This was all done from my husband's very small terrace house kitchen and a tiny, tiny kitchen. And then things started to <laughs> just explode within the house. There were cakes everywhere. There were cakes in the living room, on the bookshelf, perched on the backs of sofas, just everywhere. And I had a really understanding EHO visit. And she said, it's kind of doable for a while, 
that this is suboptimal. Suboptimal, that's a great word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of knew something was going to have to give. Yeah. And then the, the pivotal point was I'd rather cheekily, precociously posted a tray of brownie uh, to a upstart chain of coffee shops who sadly no longer are around. Um, they were called the Good Bean Coffee Chain. And I got a telling off from the PA. The director was on holiday and I got a phone call from the uh, PA saying, don't ever do that again. They were unsolicited and we have a policy of not accepting samples. And I said, well, I'm sorry, I thought it would be worth a punt. I didn't know. And then the director a week later when she returned from holiday phoned me and said, these are amazing. When can we have a meeting? So who turns down free cakes coming in the post? What possible <laughs> policy can you have? Don't send me lovely cakes, please. Mm. I don't have that policy. If you ever feel the need to send any more, by the way, that's yeah, <laughs> fine. Yeah, we have we have a, like we accept all gifts in the post. If anybody's listening, yeah, yeah. it was an odd one. Maybe yeah, yeah. So maybe brownies weren't her yeah. She really hated the brownie. <laughs> uh, okay, so luckily a, a, a more um, amenable director. So. Yeah, and that was really one of those things that you dream of when it's a tabletop enterprise and you think, all I need is this first break. And yeah, uh, it it went really, really well. Um, too well, because we didn't have the capacity. You ran out of sofa space to balance cakes on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sofas were yeah full. So it was a very unstructured, again, quite a gut instinct idea i kept driving past this little industrial estate but it was a cute one it wasn't overbearingly industrial and i found an old recording studio which we converted into the bakery and that was all very hand-to-mouth existence in terms of not a lot of strategic thinking going on there but thinking blimey we need to get these orders fulfilled quickly we need more space and we need kit and we need people. And that just kind of exploded, really. Oh, quick, quick time frame. So you needed to learn fast because once you start employing people, then all of a sudden it's not just a responsibility for you, it's their lives and stuff. So that must have been a yeah, steep learning curve, I presume. Yeah, vertical, yeah. Okay, went well, clearly. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, in, in some regards it did. I, um, I have to... I say thank you to those people who helped me at the beginning and I kind of cringe now looking back in terms of just how much they did for me and I hope that I recognise that properly at the time but I think in a way if I've got any regrets it's that I kind of think that when you're at that stage of survival and there's no spare capacity to think let alone philosophize or reflect you kind of draw all of the oxygen in to your project and I kind of do look back a little bit and think oh I was quite takey in terms of getting people to do the things I needed them to do they were always paid and treated respectfully but I don't think I necessarily appreciated just how much 
people were doing mm. above and beyond. Yeah, and likewise, to be fair, you know, having now been you know kind of self-employed for a number of years, I, I would say the flip side is a lot of people probably had no idea of kind of the amount of stuff that you were also going through and the plates that you're spinning. So it's a two-way thing, I think, isn't it? And I don't think we can beat ourselves up about that. No, we're all winging it fundamentally. Aren't yes. We're all learning every day. We're all doing the best we can do. And I think if you're, you know, if you're if you're deep down, you're a good human. You're making the best decisions you can make at the time. And uh, yeah, people are people are pretty understanding and forgiving. I think. And also, um, yeah, I think we have this kind of like you know, good on you for having the balls to do it kind of attitude because not everybody does. So um, it, it sounded like reasonably early on you started then to get the likes of you know John Lewis and Harvey Nichols. So how do you go from you've got a sofa and then all of a sudden how do you get these brands interested in in, in what you're doing? And was that a transformational point or? not yeah and again well looking back I just didn't have time or the inclination to worry about knocking on doors it was just like I just had a drive to knock on the very best of doors and why not because there was I just absolutely 110% believed in the product believed in our team in our very small little team who were working their socks off for me to get this stuff done to a really exacting standard and it needed to be shown to the best buyers in the land so it was a case of just phoning them up or phoning the receptionist and finding out who the food and drink buyer was and it was very straightforward whether it would be now I don't know I'm fairly confident it isn't before everybody gets on the phone and just says hello reception of John Lewis so I'm just going to send you some cake I guess I don't know why but I can maybe whether there's more producers but from what I hear and I you know I've, I've interviewed um, Jimmy from Jimmy's Ice Coffee and he talks about you know trying to get in front of buyers and how to do that I mean he's had to dress up as a complete sort of you know carton of, of, of juice and go and stand outside their offices until they come out so yeah maybe it was um it's because it's Jimmy and he's bonkers but so uh, yeah I, th- I think it's got mild, mildly more difficult but you literally called them and, and they said what come in we'd love to try your cake yeah because... yeah there was a, a, a really inspiring buyer um at john lewis called monique borst who is french and she still works within the industry and she said it sounds delightful i'm really intrigued how would you describe them and i said they're just really honest homemade cakes that you can't buy in shops it's not rocket science they've just been made beautifully and I want you to try them and that was my big thing again just cling film wrapped they weren't professionally presented in a little basket I went in on the tube from Guildford um a bit of a country bumpkin I suppose but she gave me the time and so did another again really formidable lady at Harvey Nichols called Sue Cloak she gave me that opportunity to pitch and said, I really like what you're doing. So it's how, really how refreshing. How on earth do you convince them you've arrived with a basket and some cling film and a piece of cake? And I, and I would probably think that was a lovely, that one piece of cake was delicious. How the hell are you then going to make, you know, I don't know how many, how many they needed to order. What do they do? They presumably order more than two at a time. It's not just for their lunch by this point, I guess. So how do you instill in them the confidence that you can deliver commercially at that level? Uh, I think what you've said about winging it, there's probably quite... <laughs> quite I think so that's, pro- yeah, probably quite, that's probably quite pertinent. Um, I think it was a, it, definitely a balance between, because we've always portrayed ourselves as honest, 
hopefully we would be judged to have integrity. We've been going quite a long time now. We've got some very long-standing contacts within the industry. And at the same time, you don't say, oh, I'm not sure whether I can deliver on that. If you're being given op opportunity, uh, particularly with the recklessness and arrogance and ambition of youth, I think you just crack on and make it happen. Yeah. Really. You're right, there is that fine balance between wanting it to be a kind of, you know, an, an artisan or a boutique kind of style product, but also going, no, of course, however many you need, yeah, we'll supply them. So, so how many was their, was their first order? Do you remember? John Lewis would have been um, sizable and a kind of like, oh, right, okay. We enough need to make to, you uh, perspire slightly at least. Yeah. Because your eyes cool. Certainly yeah. to glow. To <laughs> glow. Okay, to glow. Not quite yeah. perspiration. Yeah. You are a very chilled out human being. <laughs> you come across, or you've just been worn down over the years. Yeah, you, probably the last it sounds, time. Actually. It sounds, you know, like I'm um, super relaxed. I love it. It's a, uh, it's a basket. It's a cake. It's, you like the cake. You bought some cake. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty straightforward. But I do I think, it. I do think um, you're right. I think that that was very much. Um, of, of its time and I think uh, by virtue of being an uncrowded marketplace we were presenting something that was utterly unique because of this accidental foray into gluten-free mm. which was a novelty even if people didn't know quite what that meant it was still a USP if you like mm. um, and I think they must have seen that passion for flavor. I didn't go on about pricing. I still don't. It really doesn't interest me. It is what it is. Um, maybe that came across. But I do, yeah, I, I do accept that now it's a ferociously competitive marketplace. Um, and rightly, it's been democratised and standards have risen. And you have to shout more loudly to get an audience. Mm. So, um, perfect segue into the product itself then. So, so that's what I was excited to chat about, this almost accidental kind of use of, of gluten-free. So what was different about the product? And a lot of people won't understand how you bake without gluten. I'm lucky I've got a few bakers in the same. They use the kind of, you know, the, the almonds and stuff like that. But can you just explain, yeah, what was so different about the product and why were you doing that, not deliberately trying to be gluten-free? So we we were inspired, or I, I was inspired back in, in, in the day by... Um, Italian, I keep going back really to that, it's that blend of stuff that is naturally growing around you that tastes delicious and doesn't have wheat flour in it. So I would gravitate towards, for example, if I was baking a, I don't know, a chocolate cake for a friend, I would want to be making that really luxe and different to something that you could buy in, I'm going back now to mm. the to the mid to yeah the mid 90s. You couldn't get hold of that stuff. Maybe in a really specialised London deli boutique bakery, but they would have been very rare and highly specialised. And in, why was that? Um, I think probably because um, we weren't as global in our outlook, and that things were still regarded as a little bit funny. Um, you know, I remember my mum growing up and getting dried spaghetti in was a really big deal. You know, that was seen as, what's what's that? You know, my dad wouldn't eat it. You know, so I think, and I think also that you had a lot of now, you know, by virtue of social media and stuff, you can travel. And I do travel a lot around the UK. I love it. Finding out what different food cultures there are. And it, that, those kind of north south provincial city barriers i think have very much diminished 
people are more up for experimenting. But back in the day, not so much. I don't think there was that much opportunity. There wasn't the spare cash for one. Um, so, yeah. So being able to get creative, use what I deem to be superior ingredients like the ground almonds and polenta, which gave a beautifully luxurious baked finished cake, um, I just thought was better than using wheat flour. This is probably heresy for many people to hear, but so I'm not talking about bread and things where obviously flour's got a place and is delicious, but when you're thinking about high-end cakes, I'm a massive advocate of using ground seeds, ground nuts, polenta, sorghum flour, other alternatives. Mm. I just think you get a superior flavour and texture. Mm. And also presumably better for you in the fact you're getting back to the kind of the, the, the whole food uh, ingredient and some of the nutritional composite. Not that I'm trying to say that we should all just live on cake, but uh, is there <laughs> a nutritional aspect to it? I'd be hugely cautious of, I'm really, really cautious of making any health claims at all. It gets into really tricky water. We 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 make delicious cake hopefully as many people as possible can eat it we've got a really super loyal celiac following for obvious reasons because we don't have any gluten on the premises we exclude all of that so they've got an assured safe supply but beyond that i think there's a lot of trickery whether that's conscious or not around the whole health halo of gluten-free. I think we've got to be really, really careful about that. And it's a real it's a real pain for celiacs to have to exclude these foods. It's not a lifestyle choice for them. And why would you, unless you really had to for medical reason, why would you want to exclude anything and narrow down your variety? Mm. So the difference is, so you've, you've now got, um, I suppose, you know, the, the, the recognition of celiac and it's easier to spot it and we're more aware of it. So there's clearly a definite need uh, for gluten three for the celiac community. Where do you think the rest of the, the kind of, uh, I don't know, the desire, the growth in gluten, like you say, you didn't do it for gluten free, you were doing it for different reasons, but it's presumably been quite beneficial now that there is this kind of growth of desire for gluten where do you think that comes from and in a minute then i'd like to take that into the next stage with vegan and dairy but i'll start with gluten i think um if there there is a health halo um effect un undoubtedly around gluten-free and people may well feel better without eating gluten and they may not appear as a celiac. They may not present medically as a celiac. But there's an awful lot more instances now of gluten sensitivity whereby that person may not be a full-blown celiac. They may not be recognised by the conventional medical diagnosis as being a celiac. So I think that has developed that understanding that there is more of a spectrum and like i say i'm 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 not i'm not trying to judge anybody for their dietary requirements or what they want to do i'm just noting a slight note of caution that i think it would be wrong to purport that eating gluten-free stuff is healthier mm. 
then yeah. yeah no I think you're right and, and that would be coincidental the sort of using ground almonds rather than, than, than wheat flour because I, you know, I follow a predominantly uh, whole food plant based diet and got very much into the nuts and the pulses and kind of yeah where you could replacing whatever is commonly being used sugar you know replacing it with dates and stuff like that and just trying to get back to that whole food but you so you so you end up accidentally because of the your your kind of obsession of of quality and decadence and, and uh, you know with with a really uh, good product that then fits that niche presumably it was the other way around with vegan and dairy presumably that was more consumer demand i i guessing you weren't kind of going i want to make this cake vegan or dairy free because it's going to make it better did you notice there was a demand for it and when actually i think we can you know let's do some experimentation how did you get into that side of it because my understanding is you went through a few kind of uh, tries on that before you were happy with the quality of the product that you produced is that fair and yeah no it's right i think um as much as anything it was a technical challenge really um it was really quite interesting from a baker's perspective in a geeky kind of way how many conventional rules could we break if you like and um, what could we come up with so it was just an interesting project in, for its own sake but most importantly it was customers and we've worked super closely with celiac groups in in the uk particularly our bournemouth branch actually um and there was a very lovely lady there who we did a lot of work with 12 years ago she was the secretary of that particular branch and we used to host visits for them get their feedback on products and they were telling us that there was and this is um, born born out by the evidence um today that there's a high quite a high correlation between celiacs and um those celiacs who also then have a dairy intolerance or even an allergy so that we could then help them um to further by not just giving them a gluten-free option, by, by giving them a dairy-free option as well. And that's how the first iterations of our dairy-free products came about. And that would have been a, as long ago as 12, 10, 12 years ago, but they didn't have mass appeal. So one of them we were making, and I, I'd actually be quite tempted to kind of revive it because we made it using olive oil and, again, our go-to polenta it wasn't vegan it did have eggs in it uh, we used a bespoke dairy-free chocolate which at the time was really hard to find um, and we flavored the topping with fresh mint that we grew here it was quite innovative really um, a bit like a posh after eight cake Sounds way. good. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was not bad. But it, it, it commercially, it was a failure, and um, as many of our ventures have proven to be. But the uh, it was really, really good fun developing it's it. It's Annoying when the consumer doesn't buy the stuff yeah, that you want, so isn't annoying. it? I've, so we've had to compromise so many times and sell what the consumer wants to buy rather than what we want to sell. It's always disappointing, <laughs> but I'm sure it was lovely. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, no, absolutely right. And we'll, off the back of that, um, we created a cookie, which um, because we'd done, and we we find this often happens that you kind of create something that doesn't work but you've learned a lot of useful lessons along the way and it's like right okay maybe this would be more commercially minded and off, off the back of the initial project you make a springboard onto something else so we devised something that was called the Armandi cookie we sold shed loads of it and it happened to be dairy free and gluten free so that kind of got us on the road but I didn't the whole vegan piece um, really came about and it's been a very delicate line to tread bearing in mind we're in the butter dish 
of Dorset yeah. and the Blackmore Vale. Yeah. Um, and we love butter and it's in a lot of our products. On the, at the same time, we were doing a lot of work with Compassion in World Farming and a lot of our younger customers in the main on university campuses were telling us that they were getting increasingly interested in veganism. And we listen to our customers and the other um, vocal um, group were the triathletes and endurance runners who were increasingly getting into the whole vegan piece as well. So, yeah, we had it coming from all angles, really. Um, mm. Yeah, and no, I think it's fascinating, The um, yeah, particularly the, the health aspect. I was with... Uh, a lady called Mel from Wonderfuel, who literally especially goes around to all the endurance events and, and specialises in, yeah, how do you feed athletes for long-distance runs and stuff like that. So I remember when the first time I heard about endurance runners who were running, like, you know, things I'd never even heard of, 120, 130-mile marathons and stuff like that, and then you find out they're doing it on a plant-based diet, and you're like, I can't run five miles on a cheeseburger. How do you run 100 miles on a salad? You know, how is this even possible? So, so yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. So it took a few incarnations, but now, so, you know, replacement for eggs, what do you do? You're using, you know, chia seeds, is it, and stuff? like that how are you making your cakes and are you, are you have you got to the point now where there isn't a compromise or are they just different some and some i think and um, there are undoubtedly um products that are a lot a pretty straightforward whereby you've not got egg in the original so stuff like granola bars and flapjacks and things are pretty straightforward and um, brownies are also very easy um the frustration comes where you've got stuff chia seeds is a good example if you're oh, no, not the chia seeds i beg your pardon the um chickpea um liquid um that's brilliant as is mashed mashed banana as is mashed avocado and we've done a lot of really interesting stuff in the kitchen here messing about with recipes but the problem that you run into then is the commercial legs because you've then got to look at shelf life we freeze everything here so we're not using any preservatives in the baked product but the only way that we can then spin out to distribution hubs is to blast freeze and then ship it out frozen and a lot of these things which may look fabulous um, in a recipe book on Instagram, what have you, they won't withstand that freeze, blast freeze process, then mm. defrost it, and then still have a bit of a sensible shelf life at the other end. Um, you've got boring stuff to contend with, like mould growth and all those kind of lab check requisites that you have to go through. So we, now, what can I say without giving? <laughs> um, we use, um, instead of egg, we use interestingly we use a lot of coconut milk and coconut cream that we then whip up um that gives a really good consistency um we haven't got it's really difficult to get gluten-free and vegan to come together in certain products and to make a vegan gluten-free sponge that can then go through those processes that i've just got like the freezing and being knocked about in the back of a wagon on a pallet all that kind of stuff um, is pretty challenging and we're not happy with what we've come up with so far in the sponge cake thing we thought we'd got it but it's not quite good enough mm. good and I, I love you I, I i can imagine the standards that you've got is because of why you started this and it was all about quality and it was about taste and it was about flavor not about you know kind of uh, fulfilling people's dietary requirements i suppose i love the fact that yeah i can you, you don't compromise basically so you're not going to sell something out that's substandard 
just because it happens to therefore be vegan and dairy free for you. I think it comes to quality, taste, texture first, isn't it? And then everything else, which is great. I, I have a couple of bakers and, and they've loved the geeky learning. I think it's in bakers because baking is such a precise kind of process, I think, isn't it? And uh, I, my, my bakers have loved learning about um, how to try and uh, fulfill these dietary requirements as much as possible. And we, we don't have the, the the luxury, I suppose, of being in a completely celiac kind of gluten-free environment, but they're learning so much more and really getting a buzz out of it. And then almost taking pleasure in not telling you to an afterwards, or you try the brownie or you try the, the flapjack or the cake or whatever, and they go, ah, it was gluten-free, it was dairy free, it was this. You know, how the hell is that possible? It tastes amazing. So um, I, I think we're all in, you know learning and enjoying that. Uh, so um, you're predominantly now then you sell uh, mainly to, to uh, wholesale to other well, is it cafes, is it shops, is it restaurants? I know you tried a little bit of online as well. What's your main market now? Yeah, so we're B- B2B, which is basically selling to other businesses. And we do that, we sell to wholesalers primarily. So we don't run any vehicles ourselves and it gets collected from here on what they call in the trade a frozen wagon or a cold wagon even though you've got a license now you're you're not you're not out (laughs) delivering anymore they come to you you should have done that day one what you would all those miles on the bicycle (laughs) i did yeah i did progress to a little suzuki carry van and i have very fond memories of that driving into london and stuff but i think it was that um it was that step up to again it was another light bulb moment if you like of this is only going to work if we freeze it because we're not going to put preservatives in it and it's never going to have a long shelf life relative to other products so other baked products in the category so the freezing was brilliant but expensive so it made much more sense to allow the guys who specialize in the transportation side to come to us we have got a frozen storage facility that's off-site which makes it logistically easy um er, uh, to manage and that yeah that's how it works so basically our stuff will go you might have big direct customers who can handle their own frozen storage and you may be able to supply direct to them albeit on one of these wagons um, or we will be supplying a trade wholesaler and they then spin it out to their distribution hubs and then they will then in turn supply cafes coffee shops tourist attractions museums whatever it is okay so most of your stuff ends up then i'm thinking when the consumer has it obviously it's uh, it's not frozen so you're not so much selling it's not going to the supermarkets for take home it's mainly cafes bars restaurants and yeah we're not a retail we we've tried that and it and it absolutely does not work for us we're absolutely food service through and through and we really really like it that way why what was the when, when you I think if you speak to, be careful what I say. I don't want to be, uh, yeah. I, say, I don't want to be negative towards your face, retail. But you were going to, mm, a little wince there, go on. <laughs> um, but I, um, food service, it's such a friendly industry. And there's, uh, I think it's fair to say, I think even the food service um, wholesalers themselves would admit that they've typically been a little bit behind the curve in terms of trends and what have you. And retail are the, glamorous ones of the industry and they're the trailblazers and get the new brands in and stuff and that's really starting to change um food service and the wholesalers working within that have have really upped their game and have really embraced artisan more interesting independent brands over the last three to four years um it tends to be less cutthroat 
it tends to, culturally to be, this is only my opinion, but it tends to be less aggressive. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of unglamorous aspects to it, which I actually really like, i.e. the logistics of getting stuff there and how that feeds back to your the technical, as you were suggesting, the development of the product. Is it going to be able to withstand these certain processes, which are unglamorous, like being stored in a frozen warehouse, being handled multiple times before it ultimately finds its home and is sold on to the consumer and is it going to be in pristine condition at that point so i like all of those challenges so when it ends up in the uh it's it's in the the coffee shops the um, you know the retail places the museums the places you talk about then is it is it is it branded as yours or is this going in as individual kind of tray bakes and stuff like that do most people not realize they're eating your cakes fundamentally? it's a mixture it's probably 60 percent roughly branded um with the little bars with our label on um, and 40% tray bakes. Even then with the tray bakes, there's a degree of scope to be able to semi-brand it by putting a cake ID card by the side of the slices on a plate, if you like, with the honey bun's name on. But most of the time, they don't get used. So, it, yeah, you would be relying on the goodwill of the retailer to say, oh, it's made by honey buns. And you you want them to say that or don't mind? Are you? Um, we're really unprecious about it. You know, you've got people who may want to promote it, but I'm really happy for them to pretend they've made it themselves. <laughs> Have you ever turned up anywhere and uh, and gone? I'm sure that's my cake. Or uh... Uh, yeah, lots of times. Really? And yeah, um, it, yeah, all sorts of places. You know, when you're taking the kids to London for a trip out, and it's like, oh wow, you know, they instantaneously, presumably. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So you've also made the decision. I was reading that you're, you know, everything's in-house. So you, you get it to the point. So you, your your social media, your marketing, your packaging design is that right? Is it all here in this in this wonderful fairyland that I keep alluding to that I'm in? Um, uh, pretty pretty much. We've got a very very talented freelance designer who we work really closely with, um, and so she's not she's not in-house, but she works a day a week for us, and we're really lucky to have found her. She's very very good um everything else pretty much is done by us yeah we do we have to do things like um send the product we've got a technical person full-time who again is awesome um but she then liaises with an outside lab to verify products and stuff so you're using expertise where you need to from outside but the lion's share of it, we do. And how many people do you employ? Because you're, you're, you seem like you're somewhere very remote, but uh, you've found some other humans to come and hang out with you <laughs> in your wonderland. <laughs> we have got a happy little tribe we have, of, and there is about 32 of us. It fluctuates a little bit between 30, 35, and some of those uh, team are part-time, but that's roughly it. Okay. Nice. Um, and then you still predominantly selling the, you know, the kind of the original recipes, the original stuff you were doing, or is it, have you have you needed to change it because of the style of business you do, or has food trends changed so much now that the stuff you were doing when you started is completely different, or are a lot of those original recipes and original bakes still in still in play? A lot of them are still in play. Um, I would say fifty percent are still very true to the original, if not completely unchanged so the plain flapjack which is our consistent bestseller along with the milk chocolate brownie never had any changes to the recipe and that's 21 years ago um and then on the flip side of that you've got i think really quite innovative stuff going on um which i never thought we would be doing 
um, you say four years ago, um, entirely plant-based uh, brownies and salted caramel brownies, you name it, and you know, all completely 100% plant-based. Mm. And, and talking about not foreseeing, so you know, going back and and you know, hearing that that story of you on the bike, you know, kind of riding around Oxford, could you have imagined that this is where you would have ended up? Could you see it in your head? You, it sounded like reasonably early on, you went, you know what, corporate's not for me. This is what I'm going to do. Is it? Is it? Is, is it been a plan, or is this uh, a happy accident? In in a very again kind of I, I use the word uncommercial way. Um, there was always a vision, there was always a dream. And it's been uncanny how it's been realised. And I think it's gone full circle um, in terms of this is recreating on some level, albeit subconsciously. I think I've recreated what we had back home as kids. You know, we've still got the old table, for heaven's sake, you know, yeah. where it all started. Um, you know, my brothers and I eating cake around that and watching my mum or, you know, hanging out with your, your mum and dad uh, in the kitchen. And it's very much that vibe. Um, that's what the team comment on. It's a very family, a very tight team feeling. And that, to me, is the main motivator. That's what I love the most. Mm. You would have no idea, uh, even finding you would be a complete challenge. But if you did find you, you would have no idea about the kind of, you know, the size of business and the number of places that your cakes appear. Uh, and you're, 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 you're very uh, humble, which is amazing. But I, I've, I've forgotten to ask, how did you end up here in this farm? You were, last time we, we kind of touched on that, you were in, no, you'd, you'd gone out of Oxford. Where were you? Guildford, yeah, was it? Yeah, we'd gone to Guildford. Yeah, so go on, what was the leap? I, I missed a bit. Yeah, we were um, happily baking there and absolutely flooded out with orders. We'd just got a contract for Virgin Trains, which again was putting pressure on capacity. We had to half unbuild the entrance to the unit in the middle of the night to get a flow wrap machine in there because we realised we couldn't actually get it through the doors. You know, really nonsense stuff, really. And although um, it was a great unit, it was a great springboard, it always felt a bit of a square in a round peg kind of a situation. Um, we didn't feel at one in that industrial environment. And my husband and I has always had a dream um, of buying an old funny farm when we were old and, you know, get some animals and stuff. And then, again, another light bulb moment. Why, why don't we just bring that forwards? And we were audacious. We borrowed an awful lot of money. Um, yeah, we're quite creative in what we presented to the bank manager <laughs> and got away with it by the skin of our teeth, really, and found Nash Farm or it found us. Um, it was, again, the early days of the internet property searching and we had a desire to find an old ramshackle place we could do up ourselves. We wanted space for some rescue animals and, most importantly, we needed those redundant farm buildings and we were really, really lucky to find it. Right. And, and so how long ago was that? That was 2002. 
Okay, that you came here. Mm. Oh wow, a long time ago. Mm. Okay, and and it, and it's worked out clearly. So you now have a, a, a mishmash of different buildings doing different stuff, and uh, and it's worked. Does your husband work in the business? Or he, just... he does now. Yeah, okay, he, yeah. It took him about eight years to come around to the you idea. Beat, you beat him out of his corporate life. <laughs> come <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Winkled him out of his suit. What's his then, role? Um, he does all of the financials oh, and so procurement. Still quite, still quite grown up. Then. Yeah, he's I can still grown imagine, up. I'm looking around again, imagine him in a penny next to the daffodils. You know, you know, baking some brownies, but he's uh, still. Still, still just a little bit uh, corporate. So, you know, what what you've created is is uh, it's quite you know inspirational, really. And the fact that you you come across and we've only known each other for an hour, but you seem I feel very calm and very relaxed here. I'm going to feel very zen, and it can't be that way. There's no way that you can be supplying the amount of stuff you're supplying to the number of people you are. Surely, do you do you ever feel kind of overwhelmed? And how do you this this thing that you've created? You've gone from a bicycle to kind of you know national deliveries. Um, do you feel overwhelmed? And how do you manage it? How do you stay so zen? Um, that's really sweet of you to say that. <laughs> it's probably yeah, probably all an illusion. Um, I think surrounding yourself I keep coming back to the team because that for me is when the team is working well they're happy um we're all working on a project common goal there's no feeling like it um it gives me enormous satisfaction that's where I find the purpose um and it's really good fun we know who we can get the best out of and I think that we've learned that over a period of time and my motto has always been to surround yourself with people who are considerably better than you are. And that really tells the tale, really. They are remarkable and extremely supportive. And they know that Matt and I work our socks off um, in terms of keeping this thing going. And they really respect that. And um, they help us make it happen. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I, I find it... Uh you know, humbling and exciting and reassuring the number of people that I ask that question who come back to the fact that they do it for the team. And and, and as a, as a again, you know, people, the, the misconception, I think, of entrepreneurs and of businesses, it's all about money and people are trying to make money and they're trying to make themselves wealthy and it's a them and us kind of situation. Yet so many people I know that employ people, you end up with this shared kind of sense of responsibility that, that their lives and their families' lives and their kids and their husbands and partners and wives, it, it, it's such an exciting... Um, opportunity to to be able to create that kind of environment to create jobs that people like you know because there's enough there's there's some rubbish jobs in the world isn't it and if we're in a position um, as business owners and operators where we can create a nice environment where you're treated with respect and you can be a good employee and a good employer and work together uh, yeah, it's amazing how many people share that very rarely do I get I just make a load of cash mark and that's why I do it so uh, yeah it's, it's it's a nice thing I think about what we do isn't it yeah no 100% I think it's a yeah if I really want to freak myself out, I'll go in the car park and look at all of everybody's cars and yeah. think, I better not cock this up. Exactly. You know? I counted the kids once that were, uh, how many kids of, of, of my team? And I think we got to 32. There were 32 children um, that fundamentally we were providing for. And that, and that was like, yeah. I mean, it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up to realise. One, I was excited and I was really pleased because I like to think that we're, you know, we're a nice nice team and a nice bunch of people. But the sense of responsibility to think that there's 32 little kids out there who, yeah, who to get their dinner, uh, you know, we need to keep what we're doing and not fail. So it's a, it's a great motivator, I think, isn't it? And you must have seen, um, you know, that the, the uh, competitive landscape, you talk about how hard you work. And presumably that's because there's, you know, from what I've seen of business, it constantly pivots. And particularly, again, you kind of alluded to the last three or four years. I, it, it, has it become much more 
competitive and although you don't like uh, selling on uh, based on price because it's about the product to you have you had to compromise on that or at least has been put under some pressure to do so with oh, the competitive landscape yeah lo- lots of pressure to move on price but we genuinely haven't really got any place to go on that one because it, it by its, it's nature it's a labor-intensive product um, people are paid a fair wage um, we run it the business sustainably we're not creaming off a huge profit at the end of the day so there isn't huge market to play with and I think um, certain buyers will regard that as just a very uh, astute negotiating stance but it truly isn't it's like this is how much it costs and um, but you've got we've got amazing buyers who we've I think we've we've benefited again just from hanging on in there and building a reputation for not budging and never adulterating the recipe to reach a cost point we just won't do that so yeah we get rejected on the basis of price all the time but that's generally the only reason we get rejected and I'm quite comfortable with that perfect yeah no, never set out to be the cheapest just the best um, and then you so I'm sure people people have this this perception or, or, or misconception I suppose particularly in food sometimes about how easy it is to come in and oh, I'm just going to make some you know I'm a really good baker I'm going to make some cakes or you know I like coffee I'm going to open a coffee shop and um, it, there, you know there's not too many barriers to entry quite often in hospitality but there's an incredibly high failure rate in hospitality businesses so I go in and talk to schools sometime about um, you know kind of try just trying to inspire the kids about every but he's winging it, so don't worry about the fact you don't know the answers and, and just do something. But do you ever hear particularly uh, bad advice, bad business advice being given where you go, oh my God, that's 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 come from a theory or a book or an academic or on the flip side, do you ever hear any really good advice and you go, yes, that's the nugget, that's what you should remember? Mm, that's really interesting. And I think that... It's so individual. And I think it's acknowledging that there is no one right way to do it. That for me, I'm very much crash bang wallop, need to get my sleeves rolled up, visceral, don't overcog it, get stuck in and do it. Even if it's going to be an imperfect result to begin with, you're doing it, you're on the journey, you're cracking on and you're learning as you go. Awful lot of people would absolutely shudder at that and would want to plan it to the nth degree be strategic be more grown up be polished plan ahead all that kind of stuff and I think that that represents the two extremes on the spectrum probably and everything in between and I think as long as you recognize that I think draw your inspiration from where it feels right Um, so for me it would be people like Anita Roddick Um, it'd even be Keith Flint you know who very sadly passed last week, you know, where he had passions like his motocross that he then turned into a commercially viable project. I just think that's so inspiring, you know, and then and then him openly talking about his love of the team and his passion to drive him to do that stuff. That That's the type of person I identify with, but, you know, horses of courses. Yeah, it's true. I think you know. I always say action beats intention. There's so many people who who intend and they talk about doing it, but the flip side is, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? The failure rate is high, but we do learn as we go. You know, I, I, I'm guilty of all too often doing the action, you know, and and yeah, not having fully planned it out, and then and then trying to work it out, and then going, nah, actually, it was a bit of a shit idea. I probably should have listened more to the team, but um, 
But it's bloody good fun, isn't it? It's bloody good fun starting stuff and then trying to work out what to it's do. It's really good fun. I mean, like most of the stuff that we've come up with or I've come up with, I have to own it, it mm. has failed, yeah. you know? But the, the, pardon the pun, but the bread and butter, the kind of beating heart of the business is, it's unglamorous. It's selling pallets of lovely, lovely cake, but that is that is it. You know, all of these other ingenious ideas that we've had over the years, you know, I don't know, crikey, like savoury cakes and a little glamping offshoot and all these crazy creative things haven't actually made us any money. And, you know, if you're looking at it conventionally, have been failures, if you like. But have they really? They've, they've been massive you've fun. Yeah. You've learnt loads. Mm. And on the back of that, then you, you crack on, don't you? Yeah. I always say it's not what you earn, it's what you learn. And, uh, you know, fail fast, learn fast. I love learning. I love learning. I do prefer learning without the really expensive kind of mess up. So I was going to use a proper <laughs> swear word then. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 and we've now probably simplified and contracted the business. And, and if I look back, I probably think, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done that. It was a bit impulsive. But you don't know it unless you try do you but now i am simplifying stuff again so good well look um you know lovely to meet you where can people find out more about what you do can you remember your website address I I just, say, otherwise I otherwise i will put it in the notes but go on try and yeah. get it right uh www.honeybuns.co.uk it's that's all there. pretty easy it's pretty easy and um you're on social media and stuff like that as well yeah, yeah. we're on twitter facebook all the usuals and uh we've written a couple of cookbooks oh, that yeah. people I heard might, about that. yeah, yeah. You giving away your trade secrets there or what what's what's the motivation some, for that yeah some we um we figure that you've you've said it all really um loads of people can make amazing cakes um and i'm pretty relaxed about that and the recipes and whatnot if we can share them and inspire people that's brilliant but there's so much more to building the business than that so i'm pretty chilled about sharing the recipes good well i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna some my daughter who is uh, 10 in a couple of weeks time she is obsessed by baking she bakes three or four times a week as uh, self-taught because i'm not a baker or and a little bit too busy at the moment because we're in the process of building a restaurant for ridiculous reasons um but she yeah she gets out the youtube video she plays that she absolutely loves it you know you talk about this kind of nature nurture thing and i look at it and i yeah i'm in the trade but it's not really coming from me apart from the fact that i've got bakers and she obviously knows we do it she just absolutely loves it so i wonder whether she'll you know end up following this trajectory but i'm going to get the book and uh, and show it to her and it'll be an inspiration but thank you so much for taking the time good luck with with what you do i'm 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 feeling calm and relaxed i'm sure you're not i'm sure it's harder from your side of the table but this is a wonderful environment and uh, yeah you make beautiful products so congratulations thank you for sparing the time thank you so much indeed cheers So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.